afternoon and good evening wherever and whenever you may be. And welcome to episode 43 of the Fade to Black podcast. Hopefully a lot better than movie 43, that terrible movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh no. Hopefully it will be a lot better than that. Um, I'm Hannah Flint. I'm a mom woman. And I'm Clarice Lockgrey. This week, forget Kingsman, it's all about the Kingsman. <laughs> you say the whole word's ending, honey, it already did. In Adam McKay's new apocalypse-themed satire, Don't Look Up. The tragedy that never stops tragedying, it's Joel Cohen's The Tragedy of Macbeth. And get your tatanes out for the lads with Julia DeCorno's latest horror. And do you hear that? That's the sound of inevitability. Yes, The Matrix has been resurrected and we are jacking in once more. Plus, we give our hottest spoiler takes about this new Matrix movie. So... It's it's nearly Christmas, guys. How are you all feeling? <laughs> I'm feeling good. Hawkeye's definitely put me in the mood. Uh, I watched the finale earlier this week. I did enjoy it with reservations. Um, but yes, Trick Arrows. Where have Trick Arrows been this entire time? Trick Arrows are the oh, best. Um, <laughs> Clarissa, are you up to date? No. Oh, I mean, no, you should have okay. said something. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, I assume it's okay. That it's okay. You know there's Trick in. I have, you know, I've read the comics. I know she's she's got tricks. Okay, cool. cool. I will say nothing more then. Um, but but yeah, I I enjoy it. Yeah, I. You know what? Surprisingly, I find that I I kind of like Hawkeye more. Well done. <laughs> I think this series for making me realize, oh, there's actually a personality there, not just um, a kind of douchebag who goes around killing. I don't know. I still think he needs to be held account, but there we go. Yes, uh, I do, like. That that's one of my big gripes with the show. Like I enjoyed it, but as I say, with reservations, I feel bad talking about it when Clarice is not caught. Cool. <laughs> I can just go la 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 la. <laughs> I <didn't> hear a thing. <laughs> I will say I'm very jealous of you guys who've been interviewing this week. All the men that I find handsome. So please talk about Keanu, Jonathan, Andrew, all the boys. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I, my, uh, my MTV movie special on the Matrix Resurrections is live on MTV's UK, uh, MTV UK's YouTube channel. And yeah, I got to speak to my good friend Keanu. Uh, uh, it was so funny. There's a, I posted some pictures of it screen grabs, and I love it when you like. There's, there's always a kind of nice little bit when you make the the star laugh that's my thing it's like get him to giggle uh but uh carrie moss <laughs> she's a very i was like she she needs she i had to do i had to work a bit harder <laughs> i could definitely see that um, but you know what i will but i think maybe it's just that me and keanu just have this raw chemistry that cannot be held back <laughs> definitely not say not yeah. gonna say. So yeah. yeah, you can you can watch all those online and they're fun interviews. Fun fact: uh, Keanu taught Jessica Henwick how to throw an American football. So oh, nice. These are That's... the big uh, <laughs> big questions and answers that yeah. people expect from me, and I deliver. <laughs> and we thank you for your service, Hannah Flint. Um, thank you so much. But uh, yes, news night next. <laughs> <laughs> Spoke to my good mate Andrew Garfield, or A to the G, as I, as, as I call him. You know. As, as, as only I call it. <laughs> <laughs> no one else. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, and he, he was a fantastic chat. Like, every question that I answered, he answered very thoughtfully, very passionately, like two-minute plus answers, which you don't often get. Another thing you don't often get, a white actor talking about white male privilege completely unprompted. This question had nothing to do with that, and he just said it within the body of his answer. 
You don't get that often. Andrew Garfield's a real one. Mm. one. I met my friend's cat for the first time. (laughs) Yeah. That's all I got. Sorry, guys. I met a cat. Did you, are you, are you sort of newly inspired by your painting class? And did you, have you taken that to, to other areas of your, did you, did you paint your friend's cat is the question I'm trying to ask you. Not yet. That might be a Christmas project. I have been. You should, Clarice. You're very good. Thank you. I did get very into that art class. <laughs> yeah, we loved it. It's one of those like experiential things that I kind of like, I don't really do them much anymore, but that one was like, oh, art. Yes, <laughs> I did do it at GCSC. Yes. Now time to see if I've still got it. <laughs> but you were very good, Clarice. I think I did it at year nine and it was quickly apparent that I had zero talent and that was the last Amon and art ever. <laughs> <laughs> That's the last time I attempted to pay anything in my life. Probably for the better. Um, (laughs) Why don't you, why don't you, um, Clarice, why don't you do like a a cat, but like Andrew Garfield and Jonathan Groff. Oh my gosh. Like either they are the cats or, or they have cats. I think that'd be a really cool project. This is what I'll do. Now, every time I do an interview, at the end of the interview, I go, hey, it's been lovely speaking to you. Would you like a portrait of you as a cat? (laughs) Just putting that on the table. It can be yes or no. No offense taken either way. And then you write it in the super fast style that Louis Wayne does with two pencils. two pencils at the same time. (laughs) We will be, we've been teasing a lot of Louis Wayne. We will be talking about it in full. It comes out uh, on the 1st of January. So we will be covering it. Don't worry. (laughs) Um, Just a shout out, Andrew Garfield. I really like the fact that in an interview that's gone viral. He's like the, I love that this like season, you remember Jake Gyllenhaal was like doing a load of stuff and it was quite good. Like, you know, he's yeah. Spider-Man, <laughs> far from home period. I feel like Andrew Garfield's having this moment now. But I love the fact that he recognised that there was definitely, like, a sexual vibe between the <laughs> octopus and that dude <laughs> in my octopus teacher. Like, he saw it. He knows it. It's like, I appreciate that we're not alone here. Um, I also recently watched, I watched Amazing Spider-Man 1 and 2 with my parents last night. Mm. It's so funny watching. Do you ever watch films with your parents and, like, they forget that they've watched it? And so all the way through... Like, my mum and dad, like, just like, oh, yeah, so what happens? It's like, when is he going to get bit? It's like, by a spider. It's like, oh, just let plot develop. <laughs> and, like, trying to explain it. And then, like, and then my dad also came in at the end of the um, Hawkeye finale. Bear in mind, he's not watched any of these series. And then it's like, every two seconds, I'm having to pause it. I'm like, this is this. This is what's happened here. Is that, it's like... Why are you watching the last 20 minutes with me? Just wait. <laughs> anyway, there we go. Hannah's, Hannah's at home with her parents. <laughs> Every time you bring this up, I'm like, I, I want to have, I want to experience movie night at the Flint. I need, I need to experience that at least once. No, you really don't. <laughs> <laughs> but also, I've got to a point where, like, I'm, I just know what's going to happen. Like, I don't know, about, like, we watched, um, we watched Krampus. Uh, the other night. I had I don't know why I haven't watched this movie because I feel like I love Christmas and but I've got to a point where maybe it is because I've watched so many films and therefore I can recognize what's gonna oh I can just know what's gonna happen there next and I was like oh that's not doing that and I was like I got every single thing right I was like this is weird like do you find this though as critics because we watch so much we can we can we can identify what's going to happen next. I'm like a movie detective. <laughs> I should be a lot better at this, but I'm terrible. I actually like that I'm terrible. I like being surprised. Um, 
Yeah. I wish I was. I wish I was. Because it was like watching The Pile of Dog, which is a great film. But like, mm. I was like, I know what's going to happen now. And I'm just waiting for it to happen. Anyway. So, no, it's not good. So, it's either not a good house to be in. Because either I'm telling you what happens, or my parents are asking what happens. So, either way, it's a lose-lose situation for everyone involved. Uh, well, let's time to have some wins. Uh, oh, I don't know if this one will. I haven't seen it. Uh, so we'll decide whether uh, <laughs> this one is. Uh, it's time for The Kingsman. Kingsman, world's finest tailor. But now we're going into the spy business. Very clever. Based on true events. This will not be a war of heroes. <laughs> you... Do that king you do, do that king you break my bones into pieces because you're a violent spy organization. There you go. That's I literally googled so many options for that, uh, for that musical interlude, uh, and that was the best I could do. That thing you do, do you remember that one? Was it Tom Hanks was in it? You produced it, uh, yeah, anyway. Yeah. This, I assume this has got nothing in common. <laughs> but here we go. Here's, here's this very, very short, concise synopsis. So The Kingsman is actually a prequel to The Kingsman, colon, The Secret Service franchise, based on Mark Miller's uh, comic book series of the same name. There was two films. There was Kingsman, The Secret Service, and there was... What was the next one, Kingsman? Golden Circle... Starring yeah. Oh, Petra Golden Circle with a yeah. little whip. Yeah, Channing Tatum <laughs> and all that, all that jazz. Um, so this is this is set in uh, what nineteen nineteen tens twenties during the First World War. Yes. Okay, so that's where we are in it. <laughs> and this is <laughs> this is going okay. well. <laughs> Hey, I'm doing what I work with. Okay, one man <laughs> must race against time to stop history's worst tyrants and criminal masterminds as they get together to plot a war that could wipe out millions of people and destroy humanity. Uh, so, Rafe Fiennes is playing the kind of Colin Firth character uh, as the, you know, the Kingsman spy. And then you've got Harrison Dickinson, who's the Taron Edgerton young man getting shown the ropes. Um, and for some reason, we've got Reese Siffins playing Rasputin. That yeah. is correct. <laughs> Uh, but it's directed by Matthew Vaughan, and there's also Matthew Good, Tom Hollander, Daniel Brühl, Jamon Honsu, Charles Dance, and uh, we need a woman in there, so let's let's have it, Gemma Arterton. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Imagine the idea of her being airlifted in, because they're like, oh shit, we <laughs> yeah. need a woman in it. Wait shit. a second, dudes, we need a woman. <laughs> <laughs> right, so, Amon. Yes. How does this how, how does this compare to the original original franchise? Uh, what what's going on? Is it a good story? <laughs> how does this compare to? I think the original is still the best of the franchise by quite a wide margin. The sequel, Golden Circle, was apart from Pedro Pascal's whip, bad. Um, I did not like that movie. Uh, this is somewhere in between those two in on the quality level. I think the story takes a while to get going. I think it's needlessly convoluted when it actually sort of gets into the meat of the story. I do think there's some good stuff there. Um, I liked the father son uh, dynamic and how that plays out, especially. I think that worked really well. I think Ray Fiennes and Harrison uh, Dickerson did some really nice work there. Um, 
But yeah, uh, I'm pretty mixed on this movie. I will leave all the rejigging, shall we say, of history to our resident history buff, Clarice. <laughs> but I will say that I was sat next to another history buff, Helen O'Hara, watching this film. And if Clarice's experience was anything like Helen's, there was a lot of huffing and puffing and gesturing at the screen at what was taking place. Uh, so that was a thing too. <laughs> Okay, so... <laughs> Here we go. Well, let's jump in, folks. <laughs> like, I think this movie's made me realise that the Kingsman franchise, not for me. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't, I don't mind people, like, having fun with history and changing things and being satirical and silly and self-referential with it. Uh, I Is think... that a subtext of Jojo Rabbit's? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, like, Wonder Woman. That's a, a great mm, example yeah. of a movie set during the First World War that kind of, like, plays around a little bit with history, but it's fine. It works. Wait, Clarice, are you telling me that that didn't happen? What? What are you talking about? Oh, no. <laughs> Typical female erasure of history. Oh, no. But the stuff this movie does is like, <laughs> the more you think about it, the more like, are you really, are you sure? Are you sure this is a good idea? <laughs> because if you're going to mess with history, like I need it to have a point. I need there to be a punchline to it. So what, what is the, what is the messing with history? What can you tell us that's like, like I suppose a bit more, but not spoilery. I guess what I can say is that it reveals that World War One the root of World War One was Scottish nationalism. <laughs> Which that bit's like kind of funny. I don't mind that bit. But then there is like this shadowy Scottish figure who's the bad guy. You don't know who it is. The identities keep kept secret until the very end. And he's got this like cabal of like villains from across the world and it's all real life figures and it's like Matahari and um Eric Jan Hannison, which is Daniel Brühl's character. And I don't want to get too into it, but like, if you read up about who these people are, who Manahari is, who, who Eric Jan Hannison is, it's like, their biographies are very complicated and quite sad and serious. And <laughs> putting them in this story to be like the silly, like, oh, look, we're German villains. <laughs> Haha. It's like, no. <laughs> This doesn't work. This is weird. And it starts from there and it gets worse and worse and worse. And this film has maybe the most insane post credits or mid credit <laughs> sequence I've ever seen. Like, I will be kept up at night thinking about what they did. <laughs> I can't say because it's a massive spoiler. But they do yeah. something that for me is just like, no. <laughs> you can't do that. It's so you funny because the that. more you talk about how... The more you talk about how like kind of like ridiculous this film is, it's like I kind of want to see it just to, <laughs> just to, so I can see the ridiculousness of it. Mm. I, I suppose let's let's kind of wrap it up. I will I will I will um, ask. I think one of the good things that Kingsman, especially the first one, was the fight sequences. Um, obviously, the Colin Farrell, the um, Colin Farrell, Colin Firth, the pub fight, and there's also the kind of ridiculous church mm -hmm. massacre as well that we saw. How, how action wise does it does it deliver in the same way? Yes, I after fashion that that that's a that's another thing that took a while to warm up, 
Uh, but when you do get that Kingsman action, especially in the final act, it's really, really fun. And everyone gets their moment to shine. Um, I will say, I feel like this was a tricky thing for me watching um, this film because Jaiman Honsu is an actor that I absolutely love. And he's been a bit part in all these amazing franchises. And I wish somebody would give him either a lead role or a much more substantial role. And I don't think this film is it. But within the character he plays, it's a tricky thing. And I feel like the film almost wanted to have its cake and eat it too, because he plays a manservant to Ray Fiennes' character. And he's like the only sort of black dude in the film of any sort of you know stature in terms of character-wise. And then on some levels, on in some scenes, you do get that friendship there and it feels like they respect each other on that level. But there's still a number of scenes where we see him manserving and doing manserving duties. And I've just found an icky hard time with that, that balance. Mm. I will mm. add to that. I think one of my big problems with the Kingsman franchise is that the politics of it are so weird and it's not better in this film. It's like even in the original with Taron, with Eggsy, Taron Edgerson's character, it's like the film is both trying to be like, hey, class doesn't matter, like that's all bullshit, man is maketh man or whatever. But also the plot of that first movie is just my fair lady. They like, the, you know, the aristocrat, you know, plucking the working class boy mm. for like a makeover. And there's no, there's no real critique of it. And this does the same thing where it is like, the the black man and the white woman are mm. both servants but they also get to be part of the action but as you said at the end of the day they're still servants <laughs> like mm-hmm. and they're still treated like that so it's like you can't it's like pretending that it's doing something but it's not really i guess yeah yeah and also i think also perpetuates is this like kind of fallacy like at that time, there were women working as spies. They mm-hmm. were like, there were there were probably people of color also doing those jobs because like informants or whatever, you can make it that way, but you're choosing to kind of um, restrict it. You're trying to, to restrict it when you, it's just kind of lazy. It's like, yeah. So anyway, right. Okay, so, uh, so screen, stream or skip? I'm on. I'm going to say stream. If you are a fan of the Kingsman franchise, I do think you will find stuff to like here. Uh, but screen is a recommendation too far for me. Stream. Chris? I'd probably say skip. Unless curiosity does get the better of you and you want to find out the bad thing that they did. <laughs> <laughs> I, think I'll, I, think I'll, I think I'll wait till, till it comes. I think I'll wait till it comes on like now or something. Um, because they're just so many good uh, films coming out right now uh so i guess we're trying to save the world again this time from an asteroid uh it's don't look up i hear there's uh something you don't like the looks of we discovered a very large comet oh good for you it's headed directly towards earth this comet is what we call a planet killer at this exact moment i say we sit tight and assess Sit tight and assess. Sit tight. And then assess. The sit tight part comes first, then you gotta digest it. That's the assessment period. This is the worst news in the history of humanity. He just blew us off. What are we gonna do? We have to release the information. So we just leak it.
bang, bang into the earth. The comet's hitting, bang, bang all over you. The comet's hitting. Uh, we're talking about Don't Look Up. And we're going from a very, very concise short synopsis to a very, very long <laughs> short synopsis. <laughs> so thank you, you ever put this script together. There's 300 <laughs> people in this movie. we got to mention it. Excuse me, <laughs> what? Excuse me, what? It was a joint effort between me and Karina, actually. Okay, okay. okay. I'm, we're both going down. I'm going to take you with me. <laughs> uh, Kate Dibiansky, played by Jennifer Lawrence. She is an astronomy grad student and her professor, Dr. Randall Mindy, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, they make an astounding discovery of a comet orbiting within the solar system. The problem is on a direct collision course with Earth. The other problem, no one really seems to care. Turns out warning mankind about a planet killer the size of Mount Everest is an inconvenient fact to navigate. With the help of Dr. Oglethorpe, played by Rob Morgan, Kate and Randall embark on a media tour that takes them from the office of an indifferent President Orlean, played by Meryl Streep, and their sycophantic son and chief of staff, Jason, played by Johnny Hill. That was her son. Yes. <laughs> I did not know that. <laughs> did you, he, he keeps calling her mom. It wasn't like a mommy thing. Yeah. I thought it was like he was saying ma'am. Oh, I'm no. very surprised that you, queen of nepotism, did not pick up on this, Anna Flint. Because <laughs> it's a bad film. <laughs> Anyway, sorry. <laughs> um, yeah, so they embark on this media tour, uh, takes them to the offices of the president, to the airways of the Daily Rip, an upbeat morning show hosted by Brie, Kate Blanchett, and Jack Tyler Perry. Uh, with only six months until the comet makes impact, managing the 24-hour news cycle and gaining the attention of the social media-obsessed public before it's too late proves shockingly comical. What will it take to get the world to just look up? This is written and directed by Adam McKay and it also stars Mark Rylance, Timothee Chalamet, Ron Perlman, Ariana Grande, Scott Miscudi, Himesh Patel, Melanie Linsky, and Michael Chiklis, and every other person in Hollywood, probably. Yeah. Wow. Booty you if you're not in this movie. <laughs> Embarrassing. What an ensemble. So, <clears throat> where to start with this film? Let's start with the story uh, because it feels, <laughs> as I say, this is a satire, but it also feels depressingly realistic at times. Uh, what did you make of just the story on that level and did it work for you, Hannah? I think it was just a bit, it didn't know what it wanted to be. It didn't know whether it wanted to, I think the tone was kind of really up and down all the way through, through it. I felt like it didn't really know you know, I think it was supposed to be, you know, I think back to Jennifer Lawrence saying, like, she got top billing, but to be honest, it felt like more of a Leonardo DiCaprio movie. It seemed more concerned with what he was doing. Um, I, 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 you know, I think it was, I, I think the kind of idea that the they've spotted the world ending and therefore they're trying to convince people, but unfortunately they've got like a Republican, I don't know, a Trump-esque, Trump-esque, mm -hmm. Trump-esque? I don't know how to say it. Trump-esque. A Trump-esque, Trump like, uh, leader. And, and I suppose the I, I think I, I think the kind of... The ideas it's trying trying to kind of pinpoint and use... I get what it's trying to do and trying to send up the kind of world we live in that we're easily... The things that we focus on and how we need to have everything packaged and repackaged and purpose and actually don't listen to people and we just can't actually see the wood for the trees... I get it, but I just think the delivery of it was a bit mismanaged and um, 
just not not that funny either in places. Uh, I, I, yeah, I, 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 it was just all over the place for me, story-wise. I, I kind of, I liked this, and I'm surprised because I really was not a fan of uh, Big Short or Vice, the other two satires that Adam McKay did. Because I think because both of those were based on like true recent history uh those those films really just feel like like a slideshow presentation <laughs> like this is what <laughs> happened i'm explaining it to you because you are a baby this one because it's a you know it is a fictional premise standing in as a metaphor for climate change like he's able to to just lean a little more into the satire aspect of it and I I liked the absurdity of what happens because we do live in a world right now where (laughs) like all the stuff that happens in the movie is just kind of stuff that's happened but in slightly different contexts and so you almost don't need to to make it a comedy you just have to present what our world is like and that's funny and very scary and sad at the same time and I think the story is very good at capturing just the frustration that I think we've all felt when, you know, you see anti-vaxxers and, like, QAnon people just, like, the the sense that the entire world is losing all sense of logic and, and commitment to science and truth and it does make you feel a little bit like you're going insane and I think that's the thing that this movie gets right on top of everything else. Yeah, I I liked it too. I think it uh, <laughs> has a nice balance of funny moments and satirical moments, and that, that really sort of worked for me. We mentioned the ensemble, which is just incredible. Who stood out for you in that regard? Um, I'd probably say maybe Ron Perlman. <laughs> I just <laughs> I think funny. I think I think he was like the only one that I thought was just quite funny because I feel like. He really like lived that character, but I just, I, I just didn't really, yeah, I just, I just didn't really. I think it's hard for a comedy, and if you don't laugh or find it that amusing anyway through it, it's hard to kind of like think what stood out for you really. So, um, but I think he was the one I found some amusement in. I, I mean, <laughs> Kate Blanchett, I really enjoyed because she reminded me. Did you ever watch Manifesto, that art film she did, where she also played a news anchor? Right, yeah. It was like the same character, and it just made me think about how great that movie is. Uh, side recommendation. <laughs> um, I think, mate, I really enjoyed seeing Jennifer Lawrence again because yes. she's been away for a bit and it made me realize that I really missed her <laughs> because I do miss Jennifer Lawrence I do love her yeah and and she just has something about her that always feels you know so grounded and and she doesn't really have to do much as I, it's interesting seeing her compared to Leonardo DiCaprio who's the actor who's like always doing the most at all times the being put against Jennifer Lawrence, who kind of oh, yeah, doesn't yeah. really have to do anything, but she gets it across, and you get it, and you so understand the frustration of that character without her having to do the the massive like speech the of oh my god, you know why don't we believe in science? Um, also liked Timmy because you know 
<laughs> you like an intimidation? I don't believe it. I don't believe it. <laughs> I, I'm really confused about his hair in this. Oh, it's like if there's a ranking of hair, this would be. I think they've done it actually. Netflix had to dump so I've done like. Uh, like his hair history, I was like, this is like very, very low down on the list. Yeah, everyone's hair in this. You know what this film reminded me of? It reminded me of kind of in the sense of Mars Attacks. Mm, yeah. Because, but I actually, that's, I really love that film. And I think maybe because it felt like, I suppose it just lent into the ridiculous of it. And I think maybe the problem with this one that I found is like, it was I, that's it's like serious, but also not. And I suppose that, and I feel like I didn't. Uh, the balance of that didn't work out for me. I get what you're trying to. You were saying though about like the frustration, and I think yeah, the frustrations has come through. But in a way, it wasn't the kind of the humor. I didn't find those frust. There could I don't know. Like I feel like the humor was so much lost and not. I don't know. It's on this line where it wasn't pushed enough. Mm. Like it didn't push into like the ridiculous a bit more. Whereas Mars Attacks is kind of ridiculous. And I think that's what I love about it. And I, I think this was like it kind of pulled. I feel like this pulled its punches a bit. Therefore, it didn't. The things that it was supposed to hit didn't hit as hard enough for me. And like you said, Leonardo DiCaprio like doing the most. It was just like. Oh, you're just doing the most, mate. <laughs> and so it's just, it's just like you're taking this, like I don't know, I don't know. I like uh, Leo's performance in this. He is sort of, you know, there are a couple of over the top uh, moments which I found quite funny, but he is the one who has the most to do, and therefore has one of the most pronounced arc that you could identify throughout the film. And I enjoyed going on that journey with him. I also enjoyed Nicholas Patel's score because it's Nicholas Patel, he's a legend. Mm-hmm. We haven't really spoken about it, but Succession and the final episode of the Succession this year is incredible. And he did incredible work all throughout that show with the score and the score for this is fantastic as well. Therese, you mentioned Vice. That's another awesome Nicholas Patel score. And I'll just stop talking about Nicholas Patel now. (laughs) You mentioned Succession there. And I think that's like a really like that really hits that tone of like having the seriousness but also satire of the situation Mm. and like I think in a way that's not saying it should be like that but I think sometimes like the writing is there and I just think that the writing here didn't capture that it was like with the Meryl Streep thing was a bit over the top and then other bits were kind of a bit more like less less extravagant less like big and mm. so it, that's what I mean, like, I don't know, a lot of people were in different kind of movies. I don't know. That makes that's sense, though, because I think we are in a really weird situation now where it's very hard to do satire. I mean, you can watch Saturday Night Live and see how they, like, consistently keep <laughs> failing. <laughs> it's a very difficult period to, to make fun of because we are living inside of our own satire. So I understand what yeah. you're saying. Like, I think it's I think it's really hard to pitch stuff right because it's either going to seem just like the reality that we're living in or it's going to seem like too much. There's no, like, middle ground anymore. Yeah. I will say, I do, if anything gets nominated, I feel like Aaron, I want to see Ariana Grande and Kid Cudi perform <laughs> song at the Oscars. Because when she's like, listen to the scientists, I was like, oh, that's actually a really good comedy song. That feels like a Bo Burnham kind of song. <laughs> awesome. Uh, and on that note, it's time for our stream and skip recommendations because I think this is only on Netflix now. Yeah. Um, so, yes, Clarice, stream or skip? Don't look up. Uh, yeah. Sorry, I'm going to say yes. 
<laughs> Hannah. I'm going to say skip and watch uh, Mars Attacks because that's such a good, good Tim Burton movie. That's amazing. It has Tom Jones. <laughs> it's so good. It's not unusual to watch Mars Attacks. No, it doesn't work. Um, <laughs> I'm going to say stream as well. Uh, I enjoyed this one. I had fun with it. We're going to stop trying to save the world for a second and just get completely bonkers with the most bonkers film of the year. <laughs> to tame. <laughs> <Did I? laughs> well, no one told me about her The way she lied But it's too late to say you're sorry How would I know? Why should I care? Uh, so this is a new pitch for the tagline. <clears throat> <laughs> Titan. It's like Herbie Reloaded, but if Lindsay Lohan fucked the car. <laughs> Herbie, no! <laughs> yes! My childhood ends! You're, you're in the wrong part of this business. You're in the wrong part of this business, Chris. You need to be in in these rooms pitching these taglines. That's where you need to be. This was well, that was my tagline. I'm taking credit. I'm so confused. I don't know who's what you said. You shared the script. Hannah with the script. I don't, I don't know what to think. Hey, look, I feel like if we're about to do a very warped film, you need to be in a warped frame of mind. <laughs> yes. And this is the second film from Frances Julia Ducourneau, who also did Roll, the one where she, you know, meat. <laughs> gross, you know, the gross meat movie. Mm, rural. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that's not well. Okay, very difficult to talk about what happens in this movie. The official synopsis <laughs> goes like this: Following a series of unexplained crimes, a father is reunited with a son who has been missing for ten years. That doesn't really describe what actually happens, and I don't know <laughs> no, how much we want to give away. Uh, so the film stars Agathe Roussel, Vincent Lindon, Garance Manier, and Lais. Salome. Uh, oof, where do we start? <laughs> um, I'm on. Clarice. On, oh, have you, okay. <laughs> His face, he's like, oh shit. She's coming to me did, first. Did, did we all see Raw? Where are we starting from? Where's the starting point of this? Did everybody see Raw? Yeah. yeah. I saw Raw. Okay. I actually liked it a lot. I prefer Raw to this by quite some distance, actually. I will say um, I also prefer Raw, but we'll get into that later. <laughs> okay. Yeah, okay. I also prefer Raw. So how how does this compare to that? Because I think if people know, at least having seen Raw, that they are getting into some what-the-fuckness, mm. <laughs> how, how does this compare and what do people need to be prepared with to go into it? I think where Raw... Is a cut above Titan, Titan, to whatever you, however you pronounce it. Um, Titani. <laughs> Titani. Let's go with that. Uh, I think where War is superior to Titani for me is that yes, you get all the what the hell is going on ish, um, but you also feel like you have a good grasp of what makes the central character tick and why she's doing some of the stuff that she's doing. And 
in Titani, I just didn't, I really, I was trying to latch on to whatever the film would give me in that regard, but there wasn't much to latch on to. Um, so that's the thing that sort of, I didn't really like with uh, her follow-up to Raw, but I, what I did latch on to with Titane is the story between uh, Alexia, who is the sort of central character, uh, played very well by Agath Roussel. Um, I liked uh, the story with her and this lonely sort of father figure who uh, comes into her life and the connection that they form. I, I liked a lot of the storytelling there. Um, but yeah, and then, you know, we'll get into it, but there's a lot of what in the hell am I watching going on here? Like, for very different reasons. <laughs> I said the same thing about Spider-Man No Way Home, but I also would like that I, w- I would love there to have been like an invisible camera recording me watching this film and just recording my face and what it was contorting into at certain points because I'm sure I was making just like what is going on here to the type movie yeah th- th- there's a lot of that yeah I mean what what I love about Julia Giacomo as a filmmaker and you see this in both movies is the sense that the excessiveness of the gore and the violence and there's a lot of like excessive of both of these in in titan uh like what it actually does is it just exposes the vulnerability of the characters like it makes everybody more fragile it's like poking like the underbelly of a cat or something um it's it's like very very effective use of outrageousness uh and i wondered hannah what you thought about i guess like the emotional connection of the movie versus like this outrageousness that we're talking about Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think yeah, you're right. Like it's quite audacious, and and also I think there's like a different. There's two senses of what the horror is, because I th- I actually think the first part of the movie feels like a different film to the second part. Mm-hmm. I think there's a tonal shift in the mid right when uh, a ga- of Alexia <laughs> uh, kind of goes. She goes on the run, and I think that's like fair to say because there's a lot of very specific kind of horror, and it's shocking, and it's like. Uh, oh my god but there's a humor to it as well and she uh, you know my 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 uh my squad cast name today is alexia's hairpin which i do think should go in like the horror movie weapon hall of fame because it's kind of iconic like this idea that she's just this thing she ties her hair becomes like a weapon that she uses um and there's a really funny like scene <laughs> where she's in like a in a flat <laughs> and things go down and actually it's in the trailer a bit some moments of it is in the trailer as well um and i think you know what you get there as well is like kind of a build up an understanding of like what's going on her she and her father have a very uh tense relationship it's they and, and you can see how I suppose that kind of maybe manifests in certain angles. It's interesting, the first opening of the film, we see how she gets this surgical scar on her head. Mm. And already that kind of like sets the groundwork for why she might have this kind of um, object sexuality uh, um, uh, attraction to this kind of machine, this vehicle, this machine. But then what's so interesting in the second part is how, what I really like is the, and I think this is far more um, obvious, and I think the core of it is the kind of emotional connection between bodies and what they're going through. And like, I think there's a real sense of bodies betraying you. Um, 
Vincent Ledon character who he's kind of this like hyper masculine fire chief um who you know is doing whatever he can to kind of uh prevent the ravaging of age he just he doesn't want to grow up and I suppose in a way it kind of fits in with this idea of like growing up means further away losing a connection to something that he's lost like the odd he gets, the odder something he's lost gets. And then I think with 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 Alexia, there's a sense of her body, and this would get into the real body horror, really Cronenberg-esque kind of feel of it. Her body is betraying her as well. And, you know, you get a real sense of this is the emotional connection that those two characters have. They're both going for a similar, I suppose, uh, yeah, they're going for a similar kind of struggle where their bodies are betraying them. So I think that really captures with, the, definitely the second part, the kind of, how the horror elements is used to show physically the vulnerability the you know this kind of insecurity this kind of paranoia and i suppose why in a way they connect in the way that you say hold on this is ridiculous why this does this this doesn't make sense but then also this film is not trying to make a crazy amount of sense there's a lot of uh poetic, that we agree. poetic license or <laughs> you have to take things with a pinch of salt um so i think it gets pinch. that right I think it gets that right. Ball. Super. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, please go on. <laughs> oh gosh. Um. So yeah, I think I I think there is a real connection between yeah the kind of and I think what you're saying like in Raw, which I really love, and I love it because it feels like a Raw feels like a Michael Haneke film, um, but like a like like that's in the sense of very minimalistic, naturalistic. But then there are moments of kind of abject horror like you know lots of blood and all that that kind of just shock you like you're not expecting it and then it just happens um but I think we've got moments of that kind of uh there's that scene where she's the party scene where she gets like drunk she doesn't drink and then and in raw sorry spoiler but there's that kind of like real visceral kind of like ah uh, and I think that's that was that kind of teasing of what to expect in uh where she kind of pushes it even further in this film yeah I so I agree with everything you said and and I love how she contextualizes like the car attraction. So I don't know what it's called to be sexually object sexuality. Yeah, but like specifically for called. cars, <laughs> auto. No, th- I think that's what it is because because okay. I was I referenced in my review for Empire like I was not expecting to watch two films about women having sexual attractions for mechanical like objects Jumbo, yeah. in twenty twenty one. But we had Jumbo. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember we had that the Zoe Whittock mm-hmm. then? Um, film which is obviously a far more romantic kind of lovely yeah. <laughs> this is the opposite but it's called and it's interesting abject sexuality is you know i think it's any sort of object i kind of i googled it because i was like very interested is there a motor one mm. um but no but i no. think jumbo so cool. and Titan would be the most messed up double bill <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Good grief. and then they just throw in lars on a real girl <laughs> <laughs> But I think it's, yeah, it's interesting to say Lars of the Real Goat. But, like, it's... The way that she presents it is that it is so empathetic and it makes so much psychological sense for that character because, as you said, she feels very disconnected from her body and she's kind of disassociating with it. And, and like, the metal hairpin and the, the plate that she gets in her head after the accident that we see, um, it's like she's kind of those are extensions of her body because she doesn't really understand her body and so she she feels like oh yeah i am 
I am part machine. Like this hairpin is like just another limb of mine. And I think that's such an interesting way to look at bodies. And it's cool because we're about to talk about The Matrix. And that's another movie about like being liberated from your body or feeling disconnected from your body. And I think that's such Mm -hmm. an interesting and cool theme to explore. And then especially to explore it within that relationship between kind of father and kind of son <laughs> but also not I, I'm on just to, to wrap up I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the performances like that relationship and those two performances because they're so good <laughs> yeah yeah Agatha so fantastic performance very physical um and very very impressive uh I'm, I'm intrigued to see what she does in the future but uh, for me uh, Vincent Linden was the standout um, and how that dynamic develops throughout the course of the film is very heartfelt and very surprising um, and I liked for the most part where it went that, that's the thing that I latched onto the most um, because this whole the whole the, the what the hell is going on this with the car and everything else and then you add that to the serial killing uh, which was shot very well and very sort of visceral and shocking. There's a lot about this film which is visceral and shocking. But as I've said on about numerous films before, if I can't, if I don't know what is driving that, then I'm just watching stuff for the shocking, for, for the shocking visceral nature of it all and not really emotionally connecting to it. And I get sort of, you know, what Hannah alluded to earlier, like, you know, she's not necessarily trying to explain that, but if, that is not what you're trying to do then that's just what my reaction to it is and unfortunately because of that that's why i didn't connect with it as much as i connected with something like raw well i guess it may be an interesting bit of division as we go into screen stream or skip <laughs> let's start with you amon what would you say i would say stream uh and then watch the superior raw afterwards <laughs> hannah um, I'd say screen. I will. My my only issue with this film really is I think it gets um, the second part of it kind of loses its way and kind of introduces a few too many elements and it takes a while to find its footing again to bring it back. I think um, it just it gets a bit bloated. Um, that's my only kind of and then because I think that's the pacing issue really I think you had this very high octane first bit and then this bit was kind of mm. but we got there in the end and I think it was absolutely worth the ride so 100% screen this uh, I think it's definitely something where we, we often talk about the cinematic experience and what you need and I honestly feel like this is one that you want to see in a cinema. And, you know, when I was in the screening, people were kind of shocked. It was a shocking thing and you get the sound and all that to see it. And I was like, yeah, I loved it. From literally the first scene, it's like in your face, we're coming for your senses. Mm. Um, and yeah. So worth the ride, a wink, wink. <laughs> uh, bumpy ride. Oh, <laughs> uh, I would also say uh, a screen. Uh, yeah, I do. I do kind of prefer Raw because I think it is it's tighter. So if you haven't seen Raw, like yes. also go watch that because it's fantastic. But watch yeah. both. Just watch mm-hmm. both. They're good. They're great. They're great. <laughs> and watch Crash. And watch Crash. Another great movie. <laughs> Not the. <laughs> yeah, Not I was the. About to say, we need to clarify that. Watch Cronenberg's Crash. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Something wicked this way comes. 
Mm-hmm. Tragedy of Macbeth next. By the pricking of my thumbs, something wicked this way comes. I like Macbeth and I cannot lie. Mm-mm. You other folks can't deny. Okay. When a weird sister's coming to itty bitty waist and there's a dagger in your face, <laughs> you get shanked. <laughs> uh, out! Out, damn spot! Sorry. Mm. That was my contribution <laughs> to love the it, Macbeth love it. Tony Award. Tony I love Award. It. Thank you so much. Um, I love Macbeth. It's one of, I think it is one of my favourite uh, Shakespeare plays. Oh my God. Sorry. I t- Clarice, <laughs> this synopsis that you put in—it's <laughs> one line. Okay, I'm... everybody okay, knows so... what the plot of Macbeth is. Okay. See, is I true. see what you're true. doing here, Clarice or Hannah, or whoever it was. You're giving yourself the nice three-line, one-line synopsis. You're I'm giving not. me like the eight I line. I see what you're doing. I'm gonna remember this. Dude. That's all I'm saying. Okay, I know this. Okay. Okay, so Macbeth, for those who didn't stub this uh, in Year 9 GCSE, <laughs> or hasn't watched the endless number of adaptations there have been, uh, Macbeth is about a kind of Scottish general who, uh, after meeting the Weird Sisters, uh, he discovers that uh, he is fated to become a king. He lets word of this known, uh, word of this sent back to his wife, Lady Macbeth, and they decide that the best way to get this fate to come true is by plotting to kill the king. Um, and it and it leads to bad things. So there we go. That's what we're gonna that's what that's what we're gonna leave it at. So in this version it's Joel Cohen uh, directing on his own without his brother Sans Ethan. Uh, but uh, Avec, why am I doing friends? Uh, Avec, uh, Denzel Washington and Francis McDormand as the Macbeths, uh, we've also got uh, Corey Hawkins playing Macduff. We've got uh, Brendan Gleeson playing uh, Duncan and Harry Melling uh, playing uh, his son, the Prince. Interesting Harry Melling. Uh, not someone who I thought would have a major post-Harry Potter career, but he's proven to have one of the most interesting, actually. Mm. Um, so I think probably the best thing to start off with is kind of... Um, you know, as an adaptation, um, as we, there's been several. We had Justin Kurzel's. Uh, there's oh god, there's been so many adaptations. You haven't seen this on stage. You've definitely seen a film version of it. Orson Welles. There's Akira Kurosawa's Throne of Blood, 1957. Uh, endless number of adaptations. So, how does Cohen make it his own? Uh, Clarice, come to you first. It's interesting because I kind of. I love this, but I disagree that he kind of, he makes it his own because the strongest aspect of it is just how faithful it is to the text and and how committed it is to like what Shakespeare did. Like he doesn't really put much of a, like a, a spin on it. Uh, for example, I think one thing that really stuck out to me is you keep seeing ravens. Like there's constantly a flock of ravens flying around. <laughs> in and out of scenes the witches are ravens are kind of turn into ravens are raven like and it's because like that there's a lot of bird imagery in the text i think there's a line about 
um when duncan arrives in macbeth's castle it's like the the raven uh croaks horse and that's like the mm. the symbolism of the the harbinger of of ill will and ill fates and yeah. and so there's something very like there's something very like careful about the way that he does it it's very precise and it's very um dutiful to the text and I think that really works for me because it it works as a very nice contrast to the last one that we had, which was the Justin Kurzel 2015 Macbeth, which I love. I think it's fucking awesome. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, his approach with that was, oh, you know, let's ground this in true history and make it gritty and feel real and kind of play around with some of the implications and the scenes. He took a this lot of is... the dialogue out, didn't he, in the Kurzel one? Yeah, this is fully, like... I don't think there's hardly any, if any, scenes are cut. They're just truncated. Like, this is, like, this is a production of Macbeth. <laughs> Full but on. I, and, and, I, and, I, and I suppose then, um, you know, I think we've seen, especially after watching, like, Ear for Eye, there's this interesting way of some films that you can tell it's a set. It feels like a set rather that it leans into that and I suppose you know Amon how do you think that kind of the visualization of this because I think in a way that's where you're getting Cohen's vision a lot of it and a lot of it comes through in just like the staging of it um yeah now the staging the visuals were incredible I want to preface my comments on this film by saying I saw it at LFF and I was sat next to you. Yes, you were. It's a fun, fun morning. Um, oh, who came up to us and said they love the podcast? I think his name... Is his name Matthew? His name is Matthew. I think he hey, was Matthew. actually... I think he said hi to me at the Biffers as well. Um, but... Uh, is he your stalker? Matthew, stop stalking <laughs> <a lot. laughs> Um But, uh, yeah. the I, I saw this at the, at the LFF, and while the venue visually visually looked great on on an audio level it wasn't the best and I, I honestly wanted to see this film before doing this review again because i wanted to you know really get good sense a better sense of the dialogue than i got that morning but i just want to sort of get that out of the way but the visuals are incredible like my number one note takeaway after watching this film was scene transitions almost every single scene transition 5,000 flame emojis because they're so good <laughs> uh, and so smooth and brilliantly done. Um, and I loved that. I loved the crispness of Bruno Delbonel's black and white cinematography. I thought that was great. Um, and yeah, there's some really unique visual visuals of certain sort of huge scenes. There's one scene in particular that involves water Um don't know why I'm talking. I'm going to talk around it just just on the off chance that anybody's listening to this and doesn't know my best story. But there's one scene that involves a lot of water, and the way they use that and transition that to different parts of scene and visualize that is absolutely incredible. On a visual level, this film is stunning. I absolutely loved it. Yeah, I think for me, I really like the how brutalist it looked, um, and also uh, even just the kind of like kind of close up stuff. It reminded me of Joan of Arc. You know, the kind of, what was it, the French film? It was actually German. Who was the guy who, did, who directed that Joan of Arc back in the day? But it was like stream close-ups and it was black and white and it kind of was very stripped back, um, like staging of it. And that's what really came true because that's obviously, you know, a, 
a tragedy as well. So, but I, I suppose then it's, if, if Cohen's, if Joel Cohen's kind of like, I suppose aesthetic and there's, I suppose there's a adherence to the text and a, and a deference to the text, which I don't mind because I think, you know, what is great about Shakespeare is his words and they're very intentional and, you know, half of the work that you're doing is in what they say. Um, but it's also in the delivery. How do the actors, because it's, how do the actors say the words that make you understand? Because obviously nobody speaks like that anymore. Mm-hmm. So I suppose for you then, let's look at, um, I'd love to look at M- the Macbeths first. Um, Clarice, how, how do you think they did that? Because again, you know, we've seen these scenes, you know, it's done before, uh, especially with Lady Macbeth, who has very little time in, you know, which doesn't have much screen time or much stage time in this. Mm. So how do you think... Um, that that casting and their performances kind of really truly realise them as characters, as both as kind of tragic heroes. Because I feel like it's a, it's a fallacy to to suggest that the only tragedy is of uh, Macbeth and not Lady Macbeth too. Mm. It's interesting. I guess the the thing that does set this version apart from most other adaptations is that the Macbeths are usually cast younger. I mean, Sasha Ronan's mm. playing Lady Macbeth at the moment yeah. at the Almeida. Um, and I it does really change the nature of certain scenes and certain little bits of dialogue to have um, not only, you know, slightly older actors with Denzel and Francis, but also I think they've been directed very much to deliver the performances with this, like, cool-headedness and... Uh, I think Macbeth, especially in this, like, usually the relationship between them, there's often, like, a sexual kind of frenzied dimension yeah, to it. Yeah, very passionate. Like, that's really in, like, for example, the Justin Curzel one, like, Michael Fassbender and Marion Cotillard are, like, all over each other the whole way through the movie. Yeah. <laughs> and here, it's, like, they're, they're, it's more of a partnership. There's more of a mm. self-awareness to it. There's more of um yeah kind of I think an internal knowledge from the very beginning that their actions can only lead to destruction and that adds a really interesting dimension to it there are some really I think Denzel Washington in particular some really beautiful moments from him I was thinking of the line when he says blood will have blood and he says that in such a like this is the way of the world kind of manner that I think his Macbeth just understands so early on what's going to happen but he's just resigned himself Mm. um which is a very interesting way to look at it i think my one issue is that with Frances mcdormand because she starts off so measured um you know she has to have that moment obviously when she goes mad and kills herself sorry spoiler (laughs) Uh, see but this is a thing i take issue of the idea that she's mad I don't think she does go mad. I think yeah. the reading of that as a mad woman is kind of perpetuates. Guys, I'm writing. I've written a whole two thousand word essay <laughs> on Lady Macbeth. So can you tell? <laughs> I guess. But it's no. Like, I'll you, say what you're saying. Yeah, but I guess it's like you know she has that that moment after the murder of Macduff's uh, wife and and child. She has that sort of moment that the guilt becomes too much. I guess even if you you don't want to call yeah, it madness, it it's a sort of like it's a something too much. And I mm. think for this movie, it means her performance. I found her performance switches very quickly because she's doing one thing for most of the film, which is the more measured, the more contemplative Lady um, Lady Macbeth. And then she like hears about this and she's like, right, my hair's out now. I'm in a nightgown. I'm being crazy. 
<laughs> Woo. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was my mm-hmm. only thing. And I think that's the issue that you have if you don't have any of the frenziedness that you usually have in, in that relationship. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I agree. I'd only add, I don't think there's anybody acting today who can sound as scary and authoritative speaking as softly as Denzel does in this movie. Um, mm. He does. He, it's not the first time he's done that in roles, but it was especially felt here. And I did like in the final act where he just he's 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 he brings back the swaggering Denzel. Uh, for oh my the final god! Act in a really big way. <laughs> I'm not even gonna say it. I'm not gonna even say it. But there was a scene where the Denzel jumped out. There's a moment, and it's like yes. This is worth the ticket price. <laughs> that, uh, yeah, yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. Come <laughs> on, when that happened, yeah. I remember like grabbing your arm. <laughs> oh, God. Um, yeah, I mean, look, what I what I think what brings, and you've mentioned, you've said this, Clarissa, is that when you have an older couple, there's this idea that they've been together for a long time. And, you know, there's a line in it where, you know, he says in the letters, I'm my, my partner in greatness. He says to Lady Macbeth, and you really get that. You really get a sense of this equality in their relationship, in the sense of they love each other. It's a lived in relationship. They've been with each other, what, 20, 30, 40 years or something. So they, they know each other better. And I think the delivery, when Lady Macbeth is talking about how, she's going to have to uh, persuade Macbeth to do this deed because he's he's too he's too much of the milk of human kindness. I love the way she delivers it. It's so casual. It's like, oh, this guy. Oh, he's too full of the milk of human kindness. I'm going to have to bring it out. But then what I like about it is the way she switches. Sorry, I'm just getting the thing. But like the way she switches when she says, because, you know, I think the whole, what's interesting about this is, is a film is, you know, the idea, I think Shakespeare was very progressive about gender roles and ideas. And, you know, it seems to me, you know, a lot of the dialogue is she's too feminine. She needs to like change her very nature to in order. She knows that she's too full of remorse. She's too full of like meekness and kindness that she herself can't commit the sin of killing Duncan. Therefore she needs to kind of, I don't know, kind of ask, come you spirits, come take this out of me. And that moment where she delivers that is so quiet. You talk about Denzel being quite quiet and ferocious, but the way she spits it out, that scene is so really, it's just amazing. And I wonder, you know, I, I kind of like that kind of snap later. She kind of snaps. It's like the stop of remorse. She says, and stop the passage to remorse. And then when she hears about Macduff's, Lady Macduff's been murdered, suddenly... That, that stop has been snapped open and that's triggered her to suddenly feel all this. And I think, you know, she has this conscience all the way through and whereas Denzel, the, you know, Macbeth, the minute he commits, kills Duncan, that's it. He no longer requires the woman. And it's just, it's just interesting that kind of switch between them. And, and I really, yeah, I really dug it. I love that element. And also the element of like, they're older, like, this is what they have. This is all they have left for kind of greatness. They're, like, tired. They're, like, they've done all this stuff for this king, and where do they get it? They haven't got They haven't got an heir. You know, obviously, she. We, the idea is that, and they do it literally in Justin Curzon's film, they lost a child, and therefore she's past the point, you know, older. She can't, she's probably hit menopause now. She can't have a child. So there's a kind of tragedy there that really hammers home, and 
I just think that having that older couple is such a brilliant choice. I think that's one of that's what feels refreshing to me is having that having that choice. Um, so yeah. So what do we think also about any other things, uh, any of the other performances? We, because I think it we, would be weird not to speak to speak of Catherine Hunter. That's what I was about to say. Like she do it, Amon. Tell it. Give it to it's me. It's a crazy thing. <laughs> to say that a film starring Denzel Washington and Frances McDormand and they are not the acting MVPs, but they are not the acting MVPs of this movie. Catherine Hunter <laughs> is the acting MVP of this movie. She is absolutely incredible. I don't know if there's any other actor who could have played those three witches in the way that she does, contorting her body, changing her voice. All of that comes through and just, and I think an incredible performance, one of the best performances I've seen this year. She should be all over the awards conversation a lot more than she is. It's incredible. Uh, I agree. I agree. It's a recorded podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I agree. And um, also, I thought Corey Hawkins was great as Macduff. I think it's what I really like about it is that all the supporting roles, like him and also Buddy Carvel as Banquo matched the energy of the Macbeth like everything we talked about about casting the older Macbeth like the rest of the cast do a really nice job of like yeah matching the energy and having that sort of there is a, a softness to a lot of the delivery here and a quietness to a lot of people's delivery here and it just makes it feel like a very complete adaptation absolutely I agree and I think you know Catherine Hunter I like the fact that Joel Cohen recognizes stage talent mm. um Catherine Hunter is well known on stage. Um, there's um, Alex Hassel who plays Ross, who's kind of a main. You really get the sense of like his, I don't know, his workings in this film, and I think he was amazing as well. Someone who I didn't recognize, and so I was kind of intrigued about Cowboy Bebop because he's one of the characters in the live action version of it as well. Um, but yeah, just a brilliant, brilliant casting. So um, let's let's uh, let's let's vote. Uh, so this is on Apple TV. Uh, so you can either screen it. Oh no, you can either stream I think it. It's also oh, is it on cinemas. cinemas? Yeah. Oh, okay. So it's in cinemas. It's on Apple TV, and uh, so let's see if we want to screen, stream, or skip. Clarice. Screen. Aman. Screen. Hannah. Screen. <laughs> hey, full house. Yay. I like it. I love it when that happens. Okay. So from Macbeth to the Matrix, let's just keep it simple. (laughs) Here, let's resurrect that franchise. Here it is, the trailer. We can't see it, but we're all trapped inside these strange repeating loops. Billions of people just living out their lives oblivious but this is the moment for you to show us what is real what are you waiting for you're more critical than this don't think you are no you are (laughs) come on stop trying to review me You Come didn't realise what it was until that line, did you? <laughs> uh, <laughs> do you that do line actually comes later in the fight, but it's okay. Uh, 
come on, stop well, trying sorry, to... Well, sorry, do you want me to include, <laughs> like, a, like, a little little pause so you can act out the fight scene and then go, come on, stop trying it. Look, <laughs> stage directions need to be accurate, okay? Um, no. This is not... Okay, you know what? Just start again. <laughs> oh, gosh. No, I don't... Sorry, I... should I do this? Should I do this at you? Yes, thank you. Attention to detail. That's better. <laughs> Come on, stop trying to review me and review me. We're talking about the Matrix Resurrections. Uh, who ever thought we'd be back reviewing a Matrix film? Madness. Not this guy. <laughs> Not this guy. Uh, <laughs> uh, to find out if his reality is a physical or mental construct, Mr. Anderson, a.k.a. Neo, will have to choose to follow the White Rabbit once more. If he's learned anything, it's that choice, while an illusion, is still the only way out of or into the Matrix. Neo already knows what he has to do, but what he doesn't yet know is that the Matrix is stronger, more secure, and far more dangerous than ever before. This is directed and co-written by Lana Wachowski. Uh, it stars Keanu Reeves, Carrie-Anne Moss, Yahya Abdul-Mateen II, Jessica Henwick, Jonathan Groff, calm, please, calm. Uh, Neil Patrick Harris, Priyanka Chopra Jonas, and Jada Pinkett Smith. Wow, we are back. Please have a little celebration. <laughs> Great awakenings, Jonathan Groff. <laughs> <laughs> Hell yeah. Time. <laughs> it is time to take the red pill and review this movie. Um, but before we do, I want to know. Where do you stand on the Matrix sequels? Because we all, I think, agree that the Matrix is one of the is an incredible movie. For me, it's like one of my top ten favorite films of all time. I love it that much, um, and I don't think we're going to find anybody to disagree with that. But the sequels have been a source of like a lot of debate over the last couple of decades because people have a lot of mixed thoughts on it. Hannah, where do you stand on the Matrix Reloaded and the Matrix Revolutions? I feel like they've been unfairly maligned. Yes, um, I agree. I, 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 I love the Matrix. And funny enough, I was um, when we when uh, you were doing screen test that uh, Amazon Prime podcast thing. I was a fierce defender of the Matrix. <laughs> I love this franchise so much. Um, I love the sequels. You know, of course, you you know there isn't going to be the same. I don't know, I say of course, actually, some sequels can actually be superior to the original. But I, I think for the story that it was trying to tell, and the, I just found it kind of beautiful. And I love the fight sequences. And also, you have to remember, like, the Reloaded Reloaded, and Revolutions are kind of were supposed to really be one movie. They shot it back to back. It kind of feels like when you separate them, it might seem a bit less. But it's funny, if it was this day and age, you'd absolutely just release them as one. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, people can handle, like, a three-and-a-half-hour movie or whatever, like, now, ever, four-hour movie. Um, well, you I, say I, that. The amount of chatter I see on Twitter, I wish films were only 90 minutes. I wish films were under two hours. And I every time I see that sort of tweet, it just makes me roll my eyes to be honest with we see a lot of that. I I don't I think I think I think a ninety minute movie work. Uh, it's frustrating when a film that clearly could have been ninety minute movie that is like two hours. That's the issue I have. Where you watch films like this is bloated. It didn't need this much. That's just bad editing. That they feel like they need to include everything. Um, but I'm just yeah. I'm a super fan. I I think the ending was beautiful. Um, I think uh everything about it. I love. I think Trinity is one of the greatest greatest action heroes we've ever had. Not just female action heroes. I. I and it just goes to show like how 
just how brilliant the Wachowskis were at writing characters uh, and female characters, and uh, of course we know why. <laughs> Dodge this. <laughs> yes. uh, yeah, yeah I, like my history with the Matrix is that I was like I was hyper fixated on them when they came out. Well, not the original, but when the sequels came out, I had a full blown Matrix obsession. I had a poster mm-hmm. of Neo in my bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> I had the long black coat, and I think because like at at the time. I was just starting to get into film culture and starting to read film magazines and I I saw that those sequels had such poor reception that I think my brain like shut it down was like no you don't like the sequels the sequels are bad and I'd sort of quietly accepted that for a very long time until I went to revisit them for this and I was like oh yeah I was right to like these <laughs> like I can't believe society convinced me otherwise these are good like I will say we live in a society I'm not a big fan of the battle of Zion that goes on for way too fucking long but everything else is great <laughs> I do love his like alien inspired the, the alien inspired like yeah. yeah. the, the transformer things that was jokes I yeah. love those Okay, good. Uh, is, this is good to hear because, you know, I talk to people about this every now and then. They're like, the Matrix sequels are shit. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Uh, so it's good that we're all on the same page with that. With this film then, how do we feel it continues the story? Um, because at the end of The Matrix Revolutions, Neo and Trinity die. Um, so I guess the main question is always going to be, how are they going to justify uh, their return? Uh, Hannah, do you think they managed to do that? Like, yes and no. I feel very mixed on this film. And as you just heard, I love this franchise. Mm. And I suppose if I didn't love this franchise, I might dislike this more. I don't know. But I I found, fundamentally, this is a love story. Um, And I felt like as much as the original franchise was about kind of dissecting this, like, chosen one, the Messiah complex and all that, I feel like this one definitely felt about, like... Felt, felt it's not about him Neo being the chosen one it's about Neo and Trinity being the chosen ones for each other and I love that kind of really hyped up romantic element of it and I think it delivered that very well and uh, you know the power the, the chemistry between Keanu Reeves and Carrie Ann Moss is palpable it you just you're like oh I just want mom and dad to get back together you know what I mean like that's how you feel for that and it's just so beautiful I, I think you know We've talked a lot about legacy sequels and in other films where we've, they've basically done a nod within the world where it kind of says, we know we're making a sequel, you know, haha, yeah, look at this meta joke about it. We've actually, I think a lot, most of the time we've kind of cringed at that sort of, the way that is used and it's real. And, um, and this is a big part of what this film is about. It's doing that, you know, it's kind of, you know, if we do the most basic thing, I don't think it's spoiled to say what Thomas Anderson... Did we say he was a video game designer and he's... We did not, yeah. But we can say that. Well, I think that's like... I think that's fair to say. He's a video game designer and in this Matrix, he's created the Matrix. Uh, and so it's a kind of a good way for them to kind of like keep him blue-pilled because they're saying, oh, you can't disassociate yourself from the Matrix or your hallucinations from that when it's actually his memories. They're saying, no, it's just the game. Anyway... <laughs> So I think the kind of conceit of this, of 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 and um, that like WB Warner Brothers gets name dropped in it, that I kind of eye rolled <laughs> in that, and there's a whole kind of sequence, a self-referential sequence that felt like 
a bit too on the nose. And as much as I think, I, as much, I can understand why people kind of liked it. Some people liked it. For me, it just felt the same like Space Jam Legacy, where it kind mm-hmm. of made the same joke. Maybe this expanded a bit, a bit but it didn't really work. And I think the fun, I think thematically there are big ideas, but I think the delivery of the story felt too nostalgic, like a very nostalgic and you know, for the first hour of the film, it feels like the same as the original film, like, but actually longer, and that kind of didn't work for me, because then we had like another hour and a half, and it felt like you could have spent a lot more time kind of like having a more coherent narrative that would have worked with the bigger themes, and the kind of plot holes that developed from it, it was a bit, uh. So that kind of took the enjoyment out, out of it for me, um, on that level, but the love story level, like that, 100%, kind of worked for me absolutely and I loved it I thought this movie was so cool (laughs) I'm obsessed with it I love it I think like for me what's really clever about it is that Lana Wachowski didn't really want to make this movie it seems to be and originally they were developing a a fourth Matrix movie completely without her or Lily's involvement um Mm -hmm. And I, I like how self-referential about that the movie is, because there's a scene where um, Thomas Anderson slash Neo is called into his boss's office, or his it's his business partner's office. Business partner. Uh, business partner's Jonathan Groff. Uh, <laughs> and mm-hmm. Jonathan Groff tells him, like, look, Warner Brothers has uh, commissioned a sequel to your Matrix game. You can either be involved and try and like claim some ownership over your art or uh they're just gonna do it without you and i feel like that's what this movie is it's lana wachowski being like well we're gonna make this other fucking matrix movie then you know what (laughs) i'm gonna do exactly what i wanted um and it and and so that it's sort of like that's like i i like that it it looks at itself in the mirror (laughs) and it goes look you gotta exist so let's let's just do this let's go full blast and the film is packed with so many fascinating ideas that build off of the original trilogy and it's like you know you have all these i mean we could spend hours talking about what the matrix about <laughs> is about mm-hmm. you know the ideas of self you know as we're talking with titana ideas of body and self and you know who are we and who is allowed to tell us who we are and it sort of takes that idea and pushes it even further to say essentially that all binaries are fucking bullshit and i love that it's like the idea of of there being a chosen one and the one that the chosen one saves like bullshit no (laughs) the idea that it's humans versus machines bullshit no (laughs) the the idea of like even like fixed identities what's really cool and we can get into this in the spoiler section is that a lot of the characters here are constantly shifting who they are who their identity is um in ways that i just find fascinating i don't know it's so cool it's so cool i love it (laughs) yeah it's so interesting listening to you guys talk about this movie i'm i'm also quite mixed on it I think the meta-ness is, again, one of those things that works for and against it because there is some interesting stuff about the nature of blockbusters and how and why we make them today that I did find interesting. At the same time, when you're constantly referencing 
other, and in my opinion, superior movies in the trilogy. And I'm thinking in the moment as I'm watching it, I've seen this done better by you years ago. That is not good. And I was multiple, there were multiple times when I was thinking that, especially when it came to the action. And for me, one of the coolest yeah. things about The Matrix is the action and how that changed the game with bullet time and everything else. But even if you take away the, so the bullet time, like the, the way, in my opinion, The Matrix Reloaded elevated the action from The Matrix in certain scenes was awesome. And even yeah. if they gave us something in that quality realm, I feel like I would have been satisfied. The action yeah. here, there's nothing... It's, it's, it's not wholly bad, but there's nothing on the level of The Matrix or The Matrix Reloaded. And for me, that was a huge bummer. Yeah, it's adequate. Like, the action, yeah. don't, let's not get it twisted. It's very good fight sequences. Like, they're very, very good. But, like, when you even... I mean, we could go to the original one, which had some iconic ones, like, you know, obviously the fight sequence scene, Morpheus, where he's learning how to do Kung Fu. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a kind of... There's a fight sequence in the building where it comes down. Like, there are so many iconic visions. But even in the second film, in, in Reloaded, the one where Neo's taking on about 100 different mm -hmm. Agent Smiths. Mm -hmm. what, what I was frustrated about is, like, th there was a sense of innovation, like, inspiration that mm -hmm. kind of continued throughout. And, and it makes me sad that they didn't put that effort in to try and like create these quite quite as iconic because they're still making iconic fight sequences now John Wick is proof of it like mm -hmm. you know th that is able and so I feel like yeah it seems like they forgot that the matrix what makes the matrix isn't just one thing it's the sum of all its parts mm. and I think maybe their focus on specific things meant they didn't Cap, like recaptured in in all of it and I think that's where I'm kind of mixed on because I'm not just going to the Matrix movies for kind of like really interesting reflections on the way we live fact versus fiction especially what we've gone further like I love those elements of it but I think they're so focused on that that they kind of did a disservice to other bits I'm also going there because I love action-packed fight sequences that shock mm. me and awe me and I just was not awed um, at all by it uh, in that way I was I was excited by it I was entertained, but it was like, okay. Yeah. Like, it's no better than, a, than a, a basic, like, Marvel fight sequence. That's what I would say. And yeah. I feel like Marvel sequence, like, and I have high, maybe it's my expectations were just far too high. Uh, mm -hmm. Maybe I fooled myself. Congratulations, you played yourself. Don't have expectations, Hannah. <laughs> <I know. laughs> I think for me, the action sequences were more intimate. But I, what was really good about them is the like the character propulsion behind everything. It was very focused on, like all the action scenes were very focused on what the characters were doing in each scene and what they wanted and what where they were progressing, which I think made up for. I agree. There's like there's there's less the sense of spectacle that the other Matrix movies have, um, but I think it's made up for for me in the the level of character work in those scenes if that makes sense it's hard i want to talk about uh, something but i can't but i'll leave it in a second final thing about the action before moving to performances um one thing that the matrix especially got right and even the matrix reloaded is a sense of stakes in the action as well when an agent is on the scene in the matrix stuff is about to go down people are probably going to die because the agents are that lethal and there's no point 
where I feared for anybody's life, um, really, in this film. And I was disappointed by that. Oh, well. I did. I did. I thought oh. uh, the bit, there's a bit where they kind of, uh, I think Jonathan Groff was very good at the character that he played. And there's a scene where kind of, uh, he he comes in late in the game and then there's like kind of like mm. as a group of them. Also, can I just love, I love how many of like the Sensei cast were in this film as well, like popped <laughs> I up. I keep hearing Sensei. <laughs> I haven't watched this show, yeah. but people keep referencing yeah. it. Um, yeah. So yeah, I need to get on that. But I okay. Think, I think character-wise, I think character-wise, like I think um, Yahya Abdul-Mateen had a lot of, uh, like he had a lot of what, a uh, lot of, uh, I suppose, big shoes to fill. He had big shoes mm-hmm. to fill. And I like the fact that they made it very clear that this is not the Morpheus that you think it is. And I think in a way he had that game a bit more freedom because his characterization of Morpheus has nothing to do with that one. But that makes sense because plot um, of what we understand of how that character is around. Yeah. I love the fact that they brought Naomi, Naomi back, Jada Pinkett Smith. And I love the fact that there's so many more women in this. And, and that's why I think this franchise has always got right is how diverse it is, how many women are, women are in it, women of color. And I love the fact that like in, like, you know, in whatever the kind of real world is that they're still, you know, in charge. So that was, I think she grounded it. And so I think the characters were there. I just felt like, I don't know, the story was just a bit, there's too many plot holes for me and things that just didn't, it was hard to follow at times. Yahya Abdul-Mati in the second, uh, especially the fashion that he gets to yeah. form in this film is fantastic. Oh, Please, I'm sure yeah, but, we have more things to say. Groff. Yes, I was like, well, when my, <laughs> in my interview, I was going to say, you'll like this, Clarice, if you haven't watched it yet, but he was like, I said, oh, you had really good outfits. Did you take anything? He was like, oh. No, I didn't. I did like this. I did like this. I, like, I should have. I should have done that. Oh, I, I failed. It was so funny. It was so yeah. cute. I was like, oh, man. I like Jessica Henwick in this. Jessica Henwick ch- turned down the role in Shang Chi to be in this, um, which is good for her. I hope that that is not her only chance to be in the MCU because I've been a big fan since Iron Fist. She, she was the best thing about that show by a country mile. Um, were they going to so, make Colleen? Were they going to put Colleen Wing in it? I don't think so. No, she was. Oh well, play I think she. Sis- I can't remember the name of the character, but sister. The sister. But if they're going to bring yeah. back characters from the Netflix and Marvel world, I'd be very disappointed if it's because she was arguably the best thing about Iron Fist. Arguably, inarguably, in my opinion. Uh, but uh, but yes, um, Clarice, I've made you wait long enough. What did you think about Jonathan Gross' performance? Let me just get set my timers and get my Wait, water here. All I can and, uh, say is that scene <laughs> where he's fighting Neo and he rips the sink off the wall. I was so shocked that I nearly fell out of my seat because, <laughs> look, I know Jonathan Groff from Spring Awakening, from Glee, from, like, all these musicals, from, like, the wonderful kind of Annie comes across as an interview. From Hamilton. From Hamilton, of course, yeah. And... <laughs> Yeah, but in Glee, he does have a little bit of swagger. He's like a bad boy. True, but like, I didn't, I, I, this is the first time I've seen him, like, it really looks like he's going to kill Keanu Reeves, and I'm like, oh my god. Oh my god, I never believed that for a second. I was like, oh my god, this is like a fight fight. Uh, (laughs) And I think he said something about, like, he earned the nickname The Savage on set. (laughs) I agree. Um, Fantastic. Love it. I'm so proud of him. Yeah. Well, I feel like we're already dancing around spoilers. So before we get into that, let's go to our screen stream or skip recommendations on The Matrix Resurrections. 
Hannah, will you be taking the blue pill or the red pill? Yeah, I'll take the red pill again. I might go <laughs> see it again because I feel like maybe it's like Tenet where like I need to watch it a second time to cover focus on different things. But yeah, I definitely say Screen. Of course, Screen. It's the Matrix Resurrections. <laughs> Uh, also like Tenet, a movie I did not expect to love as much as I did. Uh, yeah, this is a big, big screen for me. See it multiple times. Yeah. I am going to say screen because it was really fun to be back in the world as a fan of the Matrix. Just that opening 10 seconds when the Warner Brothers logo turns green. You get that Matrix theme, everything, the green code comes down. I felt like I was back, back, like 20 years ago. Felt awesome. So if you want to get that nostalgia feeling, get a big crowd together, get a big socially distanced vaccinated crowd together and go and see it in big old IMAX screen. All right, it is time to talk spoilers in our... Oh yes, you put that sauce on it. Spoiler alert! Gotta bring it. I just feel like, you know, because sometimes people are jogging or they're doing something, they're not really listening. So I just want to... Yeah, we need to do a proper... Spoilers! Spoilers! We're doing spoilers now! Stop! Go ahead! If you haven't seen it or don't want to know. Indeed. Grab your simulates. And join us for <laughs> join us for spoiler chat of the Matrix Resurrections. Where to start with this? Let's start with the ending, um, because I feel like that does some really great things. And Hannah alluded to it earlier. It has always taken Trinity and Neo for the one to be a thing, and I really like the ways in which this film doubles down on that and takes that concept in fresh new interesting directions uh ending with uh trinity flying and uh trinity and neo basically threatening promising to remake the matrix as they see fit um which i think is very very interesting who wants to go first on that it's like the sims it's my dream (laughs) (laughs) the world the world is just one big sims game you can do anything you want you know what I think I love that ending and I love that it finally gave, you know, in a way it was kind of corrective. Not that they didn't write Trinity very well. And like, if you remember at Revolutions, you know, she dies only moments before kind of mm-hmm. Neo sacrifices himself. So she sacrificed her life as much, you know, that's why, that's why I think it's like, you know, you look at Endgame, Scarlett Johansson sacrificed her life, but no one's got Black Widow kind of poses on the wall. Like, it's like, why is that male sacrifice more than the female sacrifice? You know what I mean? That's kind of frustrating. Even in Macbeth, if you think about it, like when people say it's a tragedy of Macbeth, well, it's also a tragedy of Lady Macbeth. I love the fact that this film really kind of says like, she is as integral to the story and he can't do it without her. That's the reason why the machines realized that they needed to bring Trinity back and have her in the matrix alongside, but them together is too much. So they had to like kind of, separate it um but i think this is this goes back to my uh, i suppose my my frustration with it is that the first hour of the movie and i i did look because i waited until i looked at my watch and looked how long it'd been it was an hour of repeating the same thing that happened in the first film where neo is trying to get himself out and yeah there was a bit of stuff with trinity or tiffany as we know um <laughs> and i'm not and i wasn't i i didn't 
vibe with that Chad cameo because I just don't think he can act. So I feel like those moments were kind of lost. I laughed at it, but I was just like, he's not an actor. So the kind of, I wanted a better actor as that scene to kind of, you know, whatever. But um, it was always like, she's still that supporting character in that first hour of that film. And I even feel like later on it is. It's always from Neo's perspective. And I felt Mm. like if you're making this film that's supposed to be about both of them, then it should have been about both of them. We should have seen her more in her own space, in her her own life, not just from Neo's perspective. And that whole hour where it's like a ridiculous amount of clips from the original, which was Mm. to the point of nausea. It was like, "This this is just ad nauseum now. Like I... You're just showing me, as you said, Amon, it's a better film. So, like, that kind of annoyed me. So, even though we did get that ending, and I loved it, I loved the fact that Keanu's like, can you fly? And it's like, no, don't you want? So, it's like, and then Trinity can kind of do it as well. Like, then that felt like a big, yes, fist pump moment. Yes, she mm. is that powerful. And it is what you said, Clarice. Like, you know, it's not about the chosen one. It's like them together. The, 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 and it, I, I keep going back to Lady Macbeth, but, the, you know, you talk about binaries, like, female and male like that's kind of like the together that's what we need and like you know you can't separate them we all have that bit with us whether more so or not and the minute you take one out of the world it creates bad things and I think when you take the feminine out of Macbeth terrible things happened and I think in this it's like saying like that's what they realize is like Neo they need a they need her I'm not saying like female gender roles but I think that is that binary of like we kind of separate them and actually we're on we're together and I think that's what it does really well yeah, I, yeah, I so agree. I, yeah, I just love the whole. Yeah, again, the just breaking down all, all binaries and, and, the the idea of like claiming oneself. The coolest bit for the entire fucking movie for me was when she said, "My name's Trinity." Is that? Trinity. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Because I love that she was called Tiffany, though. Like I know. <laughs> <laughs> Because she was like, yeah, she like rejects that name. She rejects the role that she was given yeah, to her, which yeah. was just to be like, you know, this mother with kids married to a, a literal Chad. <laughs> yeah. Um, I just, I don't know. I just think that's really cool to see in like a big blockbuster movie, like this just complete rejection of like societal roles mm. placed on people and to say like, I am going to claim my own identity. Uh, so it's like, that's the thing. It's like what I like about this movie is that like that line my name is trinity has that cool like nostalgia thing like fuck yeah like the marvel moment of pumping fists but also there's so much meaning behind it so you Mm. get the best of both worlds in a way yeah yeah um couple things to say quickly i like the fashion as we mentioned but i need somebody to talk to me about the, the logistics of bugs's sunglasses uh, Jessica Kenwick is wearing a pair of sunglasses at one point that have a clear sort of line swipe through the middle of the sunglasses. How does that work? <laughs> I mean, Fashion they look cool, lady. but how is she fighting in that? I think those sunglasses, what, the ones with the mirror, it's like half a mirror sunglass. She has like a big like you know, metal swipe going through the half of the sun. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. I'm just going to say it doesn't work. Um, yeah, but she's in the Matrix. There's an old point that, like, it's just, a, it's like, it's whatever you want it to be. Therefore, it shouldn't make any impact on whether she can it's fight It's like anymore. in Fortnite, like, no one's dressed practically in Fortnite. Customizable yeah, exactly. avatars. Exactly. Yeah, like, if, I mean, wearing those wants, outfits, right? wearing a trench coat <laughs> is not appropriate for fighting. You're getting a thing all over the place. Um, 
I, I, I thought with what did you think about? I think Morpheus was done well, but I did, and we talked about this, Amon. I found yeah. the kind of the conceit for how he was created, and it that still he's makes both, no sense to me. So he's like both Morpheus. He's got both Morpheus and Agent Smith in him because they're the two people who basically kind of made Neo who he was. In a way, one mm. brought him out and one also brought him out, understanding. And then he's in a module within... He created a, a module. Modal. A, a modal. Now, is it the sense that Neo made it a modal when he was outside of the Matrix and that's where he put him? Or is it that mm. as the computer video game software designer, he created a modal? Because like, it was like the intertextuality of like, is the Matrix that he created like... Yeah. I was I a bit, like, Clarice, maybe you can clarify. <laughs> yeah. I, to be honest, I didn't really question the logistics of it that much. Like, You're like, I, I just think accept. it's like he's in a matrix, but then he also made a matrix. And the idea of the Agent Smith Morpheus thing is, again, I think it's just like, it's that breaking of the binary, again, to be like the hero it's like the hero and the enemy are actually not separate things. It's all the same. Mm. And it's I, I get the sense in this movie that like what's happening is everything's collapsing in on itself because it's realizing and this is where I guess it kind of comes back to what the last Jedi was trying to do trying to do with the light and dark side that like those things aren't sustainable to have the two extremes yeah. and so everything just starts to collapse in on itself it's balance and twins and comes in yeah. twos and actually like but then that is a binary isn't it yeah but then I think this movie is about like collapsing that into to one. To just say, yeah. like, it's all just one big thing and yeah, we define yeah, yeah. our own mm. identities within that. Uh, mm, look, mm. people are going to write college essays about this and I look forward to reading them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, what did yeah, you understand, there's... Amon? Not much. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's, there's a lot of logistical stuff that I'm still trying to wrap my brain around in this movie. Not only with the Morpheus stuff, but I think... As I can tell, like Neo subconsciously created a modal uh, that had a Morpheus who could um, be unlocked that would help him free his mind of everything. But even then, how would Neo know that they have the tech and the resources and the know-how in the real world to be able to pull that off? Because obviously he doesn't have any access to that. No, no, no sense. The whole going, jacking into the Matrix through mirrors felt weird to me and didn't was I think I think they explained it but it was a very quick thing I honestly want to watch it again so I can get more of a sense of how that worked and well, even it's just going it, from like landline to like wireless right isn't that the kind of point yeah. of it and isn't yeah. it like that's a reference to uh Alison through the looking glass through the looking glass yeah yeah follow the okay. white rabbit that didn't, that, which... those things didn't bother me it was the things like like and also like I can understand why they got technology because as we know like what we know from the revolutions is that by my by Neo choosing not to continue the cycle of the ones of going back in and taking things by changing it, he fundamentally changed it. That's why you have um, uh, the um, machines, you know, the machines with, suddenly yeah. feeling affection and love. He's he's put that into the Matrix now that people have some they have autonomy, and that explains like mm. Priyanka Chopra. Jonas's like character Sati who comes up mm -hmm. thing and also yeah. so that kind of means that when the machines are, are, are now their friends they could have obviously had the technology to kind of 
give them the and that's how I in my head that's how they got the tech because they taught them how to use it more efficiently that's how I kind of saw it but it was the Neil Patrick Harris one that I found like his I found his there's so much exposition like in this oh that gosh. I found it too much <laughs> that's what I think I struggled with because they were saying a lot and it re- I really hated that he said bullet time I hated it he said that <laughs> that really annoyed me because that was like the WB thing where it's like this is a real world our world that's an our world thing. And it felt like, why is that being called bullet time within this world? Because, oh, yeah, sorry, that really pissed me off. <laughs> it really was just like, no, no, don't do this. Don't be sad. Thievery! Separate. I call thievery! I like... No, I just, I think it was like, I like the fact that this is a world, and yeah, I'm not saying I, I get it, but I like worlds that are, yeah, our world, but not our. And having that kind of bullet time is the technology that how they created the, the camera work. And that's what annoys me because now you've made it and said, "Oh, bullet time is where you can do it." That that that's not even fact. Yeah, that annoyed me. Sorry. I liked that he really used well it against him, <laughs> though. Like I thought. Sorry. That was really good. I liked that he used the bullet time against him, though, because it is true that this movie was never going to reinvent bullet time. Like it was never going to have the new thing. So I think mm. it kind of feels smarter to actually go, "Oh, well, what if we weaponize it against the hero instead?" Like that's the way to to yes. develop it. And I, I don't mind that. that. Cool. I just mm. they shouldn't have called it. I, yeah. I hated that. I get what, yeah, because that because <laughs> yeah. that's the camera work. There's a really interesting conversation to be had, and where it's not the end. Of the year because sorry, to, like, also the future. sorry, oh, sorry, just to say again, because bullet time. That's not how it got first used. It was it was it was Trinity doing the crane kick. Like that's how it, so it was all about bullets. <laughs> it wasn't all this. this sorry, <laughs> it's just so annoying. I'm so pedantic, and it's so sorry. It's so annoying. I'm I'm, I'm being annoying now, but yeah. That. Are you are you done with the with the rant, Hannah? Would you like another couple minutes? Well, you know, no. <laughs> no, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. Um, there's a really interesting conversation to be had about nostalgia in Spider-Man No Way Home and nostalgia in this movie and the ways in which both movies weaponize that. Um, yeah. Well, if, if this was not the end of the year and I was winding down, I might even get to work on writing it myself. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah. I will say um, the one cameo I was missing was Monica Bellucci. Oh yes! What the fuck was she? I was like, yeah, I that was really secretly me. hoping she would turn up because that dress that she wears and reloaded, oh, <laughs> like gosh. latex. I, I think about it a lot. <laughs> I think I think <laughs> a lot of dress. What what you're saying about nostalgia, though? I I will say why I think Spider Man. I don't know. Like I think. My issue with the amount of nostalgia in that first hour is that it was basically a mirror thing and it was too mm. much and then you were using too many clips to show those beats and seeing Lawrence Fishburne in it. And I, I kind of find it a little bit tacky, the fact that we're using so much Lawrence Fishburne when he was not invited back to be in the film. And mm. um, we didn't really have some of that. So I found that a little bit tacky for me, that the sheer mm. use of it. Um, uh, uh, but I think with Spider-Man No Way Home, they weren't like it wasn't trying to mirror what happened apart from like as 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 much as it did. Like there's that one moment of Andrew Garfield, which is like a mirror, but that was a that was a correction. That was like 
this is kind of finishing that storyline. And I think in a way, as I said, in the spoiler thing, Spider-Man No Way Home felt like an, uh, Spider-Man 3 for Andrew Garfield as much as Tom Holland. Like, mm-hmm. I think it was really important and it, it carried a story for us. Whereas this just felt like you're kind of only using it um, as a like a nod back. It's not really that intent. I don't feel like, especially as this is a whole new world, referring so much to the original didn't feel like it was moving the story forward much at all. Here's a question for you as we wrap this thing up. The Matrix 5 is announced. Are you cheering or are you sad? Put Monica Bellucci in it. <laughs> Please, come on. Is that something you'd want? Yes. Matrix 5? Yes. Yeah. I, 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 ha- I actually don't, I'm not opposed to a Matrix 5, but what I hope it will do, maybe it'll be the, se- you know, the, the Empire Strikes Back of this new thing, maybe the last Jedi mm-hmm. of this one, but like, I really mm-hmm. hope it doesn't, um, I think, it, I hope it's moved on now. I hope it's now going to be like, okay, let's focus on this world and what's new about this world that we can talk about rather than an over-reliance on what's become before. And I'm not saying you have to ignore it. But I'm saying I want it to feel fresher. I wanted it, I wanted this film to feel fresher than it was. And I don't think that this did it. Maybe five will finally do that for us. And I'm I'm a, I'm, I'm a glasses half full person because I love this franchise and I love Lana Wachowski and I love everyone who's in this. So this is, comes from a place of love, not a place of, uh, of skepticism or hate. I would love for the fifth one because the way that we end this film is that they essentially they are superheroes within you know that's always been the case but like you really get the sense of them flying off it's like okay I'd love to see a matrix that kind of parodies and analyzes the entire superhero genre by looking at these two figures and like what do you do with unlimited power to shape your own world like I think that could be really cool and would have something to say about our world which is always what the matrix has been about it's like commentary on modern existence it'd be like a cool i don't know just mm. putting the suggestion I, out there and i definitely want it to if this was again far more about neo i need more trinity that's all i want more trinity i think we need more of that really um anyway agree agree would watch more jonathan Groff. So, bring yeah. it back <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, Had I to. loved it. Couldn't let, let it be unsaid. Can you? <laughs> no, he was he was he was very good. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I love a film that can kind of just get us really talking about it, and and I mm. and I think at least we're all kind of like there's so many elements. You know, again, I think it's like if something's going to swing, you know, you appreciate the swing. Um, oh, and yeah. it's far, and it is a superior legacy sequels to a lot of what we've seen already. Uh, so I will uh, give it that. Anyway, Reloaded is still my favorite Matrix sequel, though. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. I agree with that one. Yeah. Clarice is thinking about it. No, I don't know. Oh, right. <laughs> well, well we'll get back to clarice if you want to tell us what you think about any of the films we reviewed please uh tweet us uh using the hashtag fade to black pod and follow us at hannah flint on uh twitter or hannah and s flint on instagram i am at clarice lou on twitter and at clarice lockery on instagram and i'm at amon woman on twitter and instagram Right, thanks for tuning in for the last year. Uh, it's been glad to having having you join us on the, every week. Uh, happy viewing via whatever medium is the safest for you. Uh, do subscribe, rate, and leave, leave us a review if you love the podcast. It really does matter. 
Thank you so much. I hope you've enjoyed this year as much as we have. It's time to say farewell. So, farewell 2021 and our film friends. <laughs> it's time to fade to black. <laughs>